Welcome to the Dietitian Rehab Podcast, where we not only challenge and inspire dietitians to think outside the traditional dogmatic education, training, and attitudes for a mind wide open, but also to challenge anyone to think differently about their own health. We'll talk all things food, health, and nutrition related as we explore points of view, evidence, and strategies for better health that will allow you a fuller understanding of the hot topics that everybody's talking and asking about. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode. I'm your host, Doug Cook, and today I'm quite excited to be speaking with Tamsin Murphy, who's a registered dietitian in South Africa who works with a lot of metabolic issues. She's a dietitian with a master's of science in medicine and physiology with distinctions, having a degree investigating low-carbohydrate, high-fat diets, and type 2 diabetes. Currently, she works as a lecturer, course developer, and content writer for Nutrition Network, an online low-carb, high-fat training platform for healthcare professionals. Tamsin is co-funder and practicing dietitian at Real Food Dietitians, a practice which focuses on low-carbohydrate approaches to treat metabolic diseases. Previously, she spent six years as a nutrition editor and writer at Health Intelligence Magazine while working in the supplement industry in training and nutritional supplement research and development. She's the co-author of the Sugar-Free Book, published in 2015, writes online articles and conducts print, online television and radio interviews. After qualifying as a dietitian in 2009, Tamsin worked in poor South African communities which sparked her passion for understanding nutrition's role in the rising epidemic of obesity and related metabolic diseases. So let's get on to the show. So Tamsin, welcome to the show. I'm pretty excited to have you on today. Oh, thanks so much, Doug. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I love talking to like-minded peers who might be pushing the envelope, changing practice where, where nutrition counseling is concerned, and nothing is doing that more than the lower carb, low carb movement. So I'm really excited to get your insights because you are on the forefront of this. But before we do that, I'm just wondering if you could just help listeners understand a little bit about yourself, your professional background, your area of practice, and the kinds of nutritional issues that you deal with. Awesome, of course. So I am a South African-based registered dietitian. And I studied my dietetics postgrad degree at the University of Cape Town, which is at the tip of South Africa, which is also where I'm born and bred. So I haven't really strayed far from home, except, you know, for the occasional holiday. Um, it's really beautiful down here. And I was very lucky to study at such a beautiful university at the base of Table Mountain. Um, and I learned, you know, what all dietitians uh, learn, which is, for treating obesity, you know, the calorie in, calorie out model, if you better eat less or exercise more, if you want to lose weight, you've got to create that calorie deficit artificially because that's the only way you can get people tapping into their fat stores and burning it. Uh, we were attached to a really great academic hospital called Hurtiskia, which is also at the base of Table Mountain. And we got to, you know, work with really great doctors and dietitians and nurses and learn from them. But all, you know, very traditional when it came to a diet, particularly with a focus on metabolic health. So I'm talking about diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. I mean, I worked a little bit in the lipid clinic there as well during my internship. And then in the community service, so here in South Africa, when you become registered as a healthcare professional, you 
go in, you do a community service year or the doctors do two years and you go into the communities, the poorer communities within South Africa generally, and you work either in hospital setting. So we have hospitals, which is where all the severe cases go. And then you have a step down facilities kind of within the, within the communities. And then you have clinics, which is the kind of lowest healthcare kind of intervention facility, which is within the communities that don't have doctors or anything. They have nurses. And so I worked within those kind of clinics and CHCs, they call them, which have got doctors, they're clinics with doctors, but they're in the community. And the reason South Africa structures its healthcare system like that is because there's just not enough access to everyone to, to get to hospitals necessarily. So they try and kind of decentralize healthcare within South Africa so that more people within the communities or within rural areas can still have access to doctors and nurses and to the healthcare that they need without having to go into the cities where they get hospital care unless they really, really need it. So I was straight out of university, a dietitian who oversaw a set of, of clinics, basically, within the suburban communities, uh, poorer areas. South Africa is a country that has a big difference between the rich and the poor and we have a lot of poor. And so it's kind of a challenging environment to work, work in as well if you think that South Africa has got 11 official languages. So you're also dealing with people who can't necessarily understand you. And coming from a more privileged background, which is anyone who is lucky enough to go to university or even finish school, I would call a privileged background within South Africa. So I would include myself in that you kind of get brought up alongside people who are similar to you and you don't learn all of their languages and you often don't learn more than, you know, just one other language, which isn't going to be sufficient when you go into the communities. You need to know more languages. So you end up, you know, you have a line, a long line of patients out in the, in the clinics and they are waiting to come into your room and when they get there, they don't understand you. So you go out into the, into the passageway and you say, is there anyone here who can help, you know, interpret for me and then some other you know patient will come in and then there's obviously confidentiality issues there because you don't there's not enough resources to ensure that there is always a translator available and then you're dealing with cultural differences in in eating or cultural differences in in viewing body weight as being a sign of of wealth if you if you can be especially as a woman if you can be if you're overweight it's often seen that your husband is looking after you well, um, that you are more wealthy. So, yeah, and then there's the whole, there's a history within South Africa as well where maize kind of porridge, which is, yeah, maize meal, we call it papia, it has been subsidized by the government as well and grown in large, in large quantities and has become a staple for a lot of people. So it's kind of within that context that I come from and no matter how much I would counsel these people, there was no weight loss happening generally. And I felt that I was failing them. I would see obese children and I would say, you know, just eat less or just exercise more. Are they running around enough? You know, but these children are walking miles. They are playing the whole time. The women are also walking miles. The men are working hard labor jobs. And so the reason became clear to me that exercising more wasn't going to solve the, the metabolic problems and it wasn't solving them because people were exercising a lot and eating less also wasn't solving it. So there had to be something else. So that's kind of where I came from and it set me down 
Well, I didn't know the answer at that stage. Do you want me to see? I can talk a lot. Do you want me to go into where I found the answer? Well, so I guess just to paint a picture, I think this is pretty universal in Western countries. So Canada had a food guide for food groups. It used to have five. I think all Western countries are the same, England, Australia, US, South Africa. So similar thing in South Africa then, you had these kind of four or five categories. I guess it was meats, dairy, starches, fruits, vegetables, that kind of thing. And you were using that as a model, I guess, like we, we all kind of do. But given the nature of the like the financial picture, which we see with the indigenous people in Canada, they, they don't get the best food up north and it's hugely expensive. So they're eating a lot of this maize meal or cornmeal, I guess, ground corn, porridges and that kind of thing. Yeah. So in addition to, you know, eat less, move more, because that was what we thought it was all about. Mm. Um, you were still working, I guess, within that paradigm of kind of mm. those rough four to five food groups yes right? exactly so our government would fortify as well and yeah you're exactly right so those those food groups in south africa we didn't really work with my plate or a food pyramid but it boils down to the same thing you know the food pyramid would have grains at the bottom we just had a statement which said make starchy foods and grains the basis of every meal we would say eat fat sparingly would be one of our food-based mm -hmm. dietary guidelines and it was all based around I think like many countries do take the lead from the United States and, you know, in the early eighties when the American Heart Association said you got to cut, cut fats down to below 30% of total calorie intake. I mean, the rest of the world follows suit and that was no exception when it comes to South Africa, we followed suit. And similarly, when, when the dietary guide, the American dietary guidelines came out in the same kind of vein, limiting fat, encouraging grains as a, as a primary or the main kind of basis of every meal, we, we followed suit. So yes, it was it's much the same, much the same. Okay. And then so, but there was a turning point. So it was your early practice changed to some, in some manner. So as I say, what was the aha moment? Yes, that's exactly it. So I didn't end up practicing for the first, for the first six years after university, I ended up not seeing clients at all. I went into working for a supplement company and luckily working for a health magazine, which was one of the top health magazines, actually, if not by the end, the top health magazine in South Africa. And I was a nutrition editor and a writer for this magazine. And there was in 2012, there was a big hoo-ha in South Africa by are probably the most prominent, definitely one of the most prominent professors who was also a, a social, like a personality of, of, yeah, he was a celebrity, an academic celebrity in South Africa. And his name is Professor Timothy Noakes. And around 2012, he came out with this whole Banting diet, he called it, which is, uh, was based after he read a new Atkins for a new new book by Westman and Finney. And uh, Volek as well, I think. And he read that and it kind of changed his whole idea around eating from where he'd been telling people to eat carbs, especially runners. And then he realized that he was diabetic and he went and completely changed, basically started eating an Atkins-esque diet, which he called Banting after a man named Banting who also popularized low-carb diets, high-fat diets. Let me just interrupt. That's an Englishman from, I think, the mid 1800s. So there was some, some sense that 
what they used to call farinaceous foods, which are yes. starches, might be a problem. So this is not a new thing. This is just to put it into context for people who might not be aware of that. So that's who Banting was, but uh, I, that, that's that's just a little bit of history. So go on. Yeah. No, Doug, that's, that's really important. In South Africa, we say no when we mean yes. So when I say no, Doug, I mean, yes, Doug, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, so... So that is exactly right. And I think history is important because it, it, this isn't a new diet. And I think you've made a really important point. And if you could go back even further in the 1800s to the traditional societies like the Maasai in Kenya, where my dad grew up, or the Hadza, or the native Canadians with their Ulican Greece, there's just so many, or you know, the Inuit, there's so many traditional communities and they, and they they ate Bantam diets or low-carb diets or Atkins diets or whatever you want to call it. And they were very, in, and they are in very, very good health where they still eat that way. So it's not something that doesn't come with a long history of, of safety and efficacy being quite clear. So I, mm -hmm. think, I think that's a very important point. Yeah, but anyway, so I, I heard about Nox's complete turnaround about fat being healthy now and carbs being dangerous and completely turning the whole dietary guidelines on his head and obviously coming from a traditional standpoint as a dietitian, where I think we are, at least in South Africa, we're trained, but I think actually globally, we're trained to be quite conservative mm -hmm. as dietitians. And I think it's a little bit unfortunate. And as all healthcare professionals, we're paid for our time. We see clients, so we're paid for our time. And we don't really have that much time to dig into the literature ourselves, to dig into science ourselves. We rely on big bodies like the American Heart Association or the World Health Organization or the CDC or the FDA to kind of tell us what's going on, what does the literature say, and we trust them. And I was lucky enough that I was working for this health magazine that, and with a, a medical kind of background that I could dig into the science because now, obviously, the magazine wanted a lot of articles on this Banting diet and paleo was also big coming in. And so I needed to write it, write these, write these articles. And so I went into PubMed and Google Scholar and I looked into what actually evidence was there, thinking that I was going to find there was no evidence for this kind of diet. Saturated fat was going to cause heart disease, as I was always told. So people need to avoid it. And carbs, you know, have to be the basis of your every meal because you certainly, otherwise, protein, you can only eat so much. There's a kind of a ceiling on protein. And so if you're not eating huge amounts of fat, which is very dangerous, I thought, then you're going to have to eat huge amounts of carbs to kind of maintain your body weight and to get the energy that you need. So I went in with this kind of mindset only to find that the literature did not support it. And that was a big surprise. And I started writing more and more and more on the, this topic, on carbohydrate restriction, on paleo diets, on the dangers of anti-nutrients and plant foods. And because I... I use this as an opportunity to do my own research. And that was what made me so lucky to be able to find out the truth around what the evidence actually was saying. And that saturated fat does not cause heart disease after all. And carbohydrates, especially, I mean, work by G.D. Campbell, who was a medical doctor who was based in KwaZulu-Natal section of South Africa. He kind of came up with this 20-year rule theory, which every time a traditional society within South Africa was exposed to refined carbohydrates and sugar, it took 20 years and then they, there was a huge surge of diabetes that happened. So it was, he called it the 20-year rule. So you can look up G.D. Campbell back in the 60s. And yeah, it was kind of like as soon as they introduced refined carbs and the sugars, 
there was a surge of diabetes 20 years later. But the thing is, it wasn't just that that they were introducing. They were also introducing seed oils or vegetable oils, as we call them, which are actually euphemisms for highly uh, refined industrial oils, actually. And so I think that they have a role to play. And, and when we discuss later how kind of my thoughts on diet have are still busy changing. And I think that's the sign of a good, of a scientific mind is you must change your, your opinion based on the evidence that is available. So if the evidence that is available, what you know makes you think one thing, but then the evidence progresses or you discover something else, you have to be big enough to say, I changed my mind. Actually, the evidence points that something else or more could be playing a role. And that's kind of where I am at the moment with polyunsaturated fats and seed oils. I'm starting to think they play a bigger role than I originally thought. But obviously, refined carbs and sugars are also a big, a big problem. So that's kind of, it was the research for the magazine articles and the exposure to the scientific evidence that convinced me that I had been wrong and that unfortunately, I hadn't been helping those people in the communities that I had been trying so hard to help in my community service year because I was giving them the wrong advice. I was, I was setting them up for failure. And so I, I, now I'm trying to make up for it and, and be part of the change that can actually get people to be metabolically healthy in a global society that is becoming incredibly metabolically unhealthy. Yeah, and so those are, to me, anyone who's to maybe use an expression that sounds evangelical, anyone who's seen the light kind of comes to that same rebirth through the same kind of processes that you're talking about, maybe just in different ways. And I think it's important, what I learned about myself and what I learned about this practice is, and there's more to it than this, I'm not summarizing the history and, and succinctly, but you know, largely we started thinking fat was bad, as you say. So we say limit it to 30% of your calories. We assume that if you eat a so-called healthy diet, you'll spontaneously eat 12% of your calories from protein. And that's all you need anymore. It was a waste, right? And then, well, you have to come up to a hundred. So the rest is carbohydrate. So we now know that's been kind of debunked that there is a benefit from eating higher protein and we don't have to go into it that's out there but to your point you have these steering committees that you assume are looking at the evidence objectively and wholly and then completely and then from that distilling down the best available evidence to inform clinical practice guidelines not realizing that a lot of the research isn't looked at and there's committees that decide what's going to be looked at and what's not going to be looked at. It's not a perfect system and that's not to instill doubt into people's minds, but it's really to your point, we should always have a critical eye on everything and always be healthy dose of skepticism and kind of be asking the right questions. And I'm the first to say, I'm not putting these words in your mouth, but yeah, dietitians are highly conservative. Nanny state sounds maybe sexist, so we'll call it a paternal state. It's really much like, you know, I know what's best and we don't want to say things that might seem radical. And we've got this concept of a balanced diet, which may not be the best thing ever. I know that needs to be unpacked a lot. So I guess all this to say that there is this resistance to kind of go against something that you've internalized as truth. So as a practitioner to kind of 
do an about face is difficult because um, there's a lot of learning and you have to do within yourself. And it's, it is hard to change your minds. But to your point, when evidence comes in, you modify what you're doing and saying in line with the evidence, you don't kind of filter it to, to fit your belief system. But sadly, there's entire institutions embedded in this this perspective, right? So there's entire careers, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of research has been predicated on the, the low fat, higher carb hypothesis. Entire wings in universities and hospitals have been built for this. So it's, it's a challenge, but um, I think the tide is turning. So I, I echo what you're saying is what I'm trying to say. I don't know if you had a comment before I ask other questions. Oh no, I think I think you put that that really well because you also touched on the point that there's a, there's a bigger picture here and that there's a lot of external kind of meddling that happens in the literature that gets considered or not considered or even what gets published and not published. Yeah, so I think that that's really important. We can see, you know, the role if you read Nina Teicholz's book Big Fat Surprise, she goes a lot into the the politics behind the whole diet heart hypothesis, which is basically fat causes heart disease. And she goes into, you know, how Sen Senator McGovern, who was a vegan, was very, very involved in, in promoting the whole American dietary guidelines in the early 80s. So I think, I think it's really worthwhile to read those kind of books and to get an idea of what the history, the history is. And then we go back to your, your emphasis on that history. And I think it's really, really important because history tells you a lot. It's like a, a huge population-based experiment is what we have in our history. We have this enormous epidemiological experiment that shows us kind of, oh, we know what people were eating way back when. What did their metabolic health look like? Oh, we know what people were eating in the 60s. What did their metabolic health look like? Oh, we know what people were eating in the 80s now with the you know, reduction in dietary fat. and What did their metabolic health look like? And it's very clear from Cohen's review he takes a look at the American stats and how as carbohydrate increased and fat decreased, and beautiful bar graphs in that study, if you want to link to it, how as, as carbohydrate increased and fat decreased from the early 80s, how there was a sudden spike in, in body weight and diabetes and cardiovascular disease followed suit. But I've since realized that wasn't where the rise started. And that's something I've only... I'm only touching on now in the last month or so, I've been kind of playing with my knowledge in this area. So, I, But I'm realizing that actually these diseases kind of started in the early 1900s, like 1910, with the introduction of refined seed oils or vegetable oils, if you want to call it that. And I, I didn't know that until recently because we all blame the carbohydrates in my world, which I still believe are to blame. Refined carbohydrates and sugars from what I've seen, are to blame there was a dramatic increase from the early 80s. But now if I look back even further in the history, the increase was already starting in about 1910, 1920 with the introduction of refined seed oils in small amounts. And so I think that they kind of, they do work together. And I think we have to look at processed food as the demon, honestly. <laughs> we don't want to sound zealous. I shouldn't use those kind of analogies, but I think processed food is, is the big problem. And I think refined carbs and sugars 
are hugely to blame and reductions in fat, as can clearly be seen from the stats from the 80s in what happened to body weight, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. But we also need to look a little bit earlier when the rise started gradually and look at the role that these factory-made franken oils, if you want to call them, and the role that they play as well. So I think, I think it's important. I'm just as you're speaking, we're, we're, we're being very polite with our words. And it's funny how we're socialized, or maybe just it's human nature not to be too, too confronting, unless maybe you've got a, a, you know, a personality that is really, you know, what the heck, but we're afraid to kind of call these things out. And I think it's I, the number is roughly 60% that I've read that our calories are coming from processed foods. And really the majority of that, as you've already pointed out, is refined flour, refined grain products, vegetable oils, and refined added sugars. And so for me, if someone wants to go low carb, high fat, or even keto, I'll support them. But it's also important for people to understand that it's not black and white. It's not a polar position. So you can easily go lower carb simply by changing the quality of your carbs. So everyone's different. I know there's people out there who might be anti-lectin or anti-phytates, but I'm, I'm not on the, in the camp where I'm going to say that chickpeas are bad or sweet potatoes are bad because they have carbohydrate. It's pretty hard to overeat steak or salmon and broccoli and quinoa and have these metabolic issues, right? That's not the problem. It's really the insidiousness of these other elements. And people will say, I don't really eat junk food, but if you're eating crackers, right? Something that seems benign like crackers, white flour, <laughs> vegetable oil, it's all that kind of stuff that is really kind of taking away from what we call nutrient-dense whole foods, which can be sometimes esoteric to people and nuanced, but it also sounds a bit trivial to say, oh, just eat closer to the earth or the way grandma did. But it it really is like that. So I, for me, I just, I, I'm not asking you to confirm your position, but I want people to understand that like when we talk about the carbs, it can be sweet potatoes, it can be chickpeas. No one, I don't think people are saying that those are bad. If someone wants to go keto, that's a different story, but there's certainly ways to cut the impact of carbohydrates without going maybe too radical if, if someone sees it that way. Because a lot of people will push back, especially dietitians. It's like, I don't practice restriction. I don't do restriction. All foods fit. There are no good foods or bad foods. So they'll have to work within that parameter. But anyway, I'm just rambling. Is that they do restrict. I mean, they're telling people to starve. They're restricting their calories. And that is a restriction. Yeah, I never thought um, of it that and way. And by telling people to eat in moderation means that you're not, you're not dealing with the hormonal milieu that encourages overeating and hunger. You've got to get control of the hunger, which is a very nice article in the New York Times, if I remember correctly, by Ludwig and Friedman. I think it's entitled Hunger. And they talk about the role of insulin, which is secreted by the pancreas in response to eating carbohydrates, which get broken down into sugar. So insulin, the role that insulin plays in hunger in making you hungry because it directs the fuel that you eat into, into fat storage, kind of locking it down. And I, I would like to maybe explain that in kind of my little analogy of the way I understand it. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, I wanted to mention that I think you have hit the nail on the head. I think that everyone would be healthy if they just ate the way grandma ate or <laughs> great grandma ate because it all boils down to eating whole, real foods. And I think that that would help prevent where we are today. The problem comes in that that might not be enough once our metabolism is already broken. Once it's already broken, like let's say you're diabetic, 
you can't just eat, you know, sweet potatoes and a whole lot of nuts and a whole lot of hummus or chickpeas and think that you're going to be okay because the problem is your metabolism is already broken. Those things get broken down to carbohydrates, sugar in the bloodstream, glucose in the bloodstream, and you, you can't process it. You just, you can't get the sugar out of the bloodstream because you have what they call in, in our communities here, what they call diabetes, sugar disease because that's what it is. It's, it's a carbohydrate intolerance. You can't, you can't get it out of the bloodstream. The blood sugar just rises, 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 and that's diabetes. Once you are that metabolically broken, you cannot process carbs. How do you deal with that? You just don't eat them, or you eat only the amount of carbs that your body can handle. We're only supposed to have one teaspoon of sugar in our blood at any one time. The equivalent to that, five grams of sugar in our blood at any one time circulating. And the way you can prevent suddenly having a huge amount of sugar come into your bloodstream from even from things like sweet potatoes and, and chickpeas and nuts and healthier things. I'm not saying don't eat those if you are metabolically healthy, but there are some conditions where you wouldn't, I wouldn't be putting a, a client or a patient onto those foods if we're trying to use diet therapeutically to treat a metabolic disease. And so, yeah, so that's kind of my, where my thinking is, yes, let's eat a whole real food-based diet. But once you're metabolically broken, you need to fix things or at least get things under control. And you and there you might require a more stringent diet. And there's other, if we go into the whole lectin, oxalates, all that kind of thing, which I don't think we have time for really, but just to mention that some of that way of being broken, if I, I don't really want to call it that because it sounds horrible, but a long history of eating an unhealthy processed food, high refined carbs, sugar, hoofer diet, polyunsaturated fat diet, is maybe autoimmune diseases, things like let's say Hashimoto's thyroiditis, where your own immune system attacks your thyroid. When it comes to that, then you might be, you know, wanting to stay away from foods that are are goitrogens that kind of reduce your your body's ability to produce thyroid hormone because you're already so inept at doing that. And in those cases, you might look at actually limiting things like broccoli that would otherwise be healthy. But so I think, I think once someone has, once there are therapeutic requirements, then being whole real food will help, but it may not be enough to overcome those things to the point that other dietary strategies can allow for them to be overcome, if that makes sense. No, it's a perfect distinction. So that's a uh, clarity that needed to be pointed out. And, and so, yeah, you, no, I, I, I totally get that. And I do believe that. I guess I had the mind of kind of the, the bigger picture towards healthy yeah, eating. But yeah, there is that clear distinction. So that's important that you highlighted that. Uh, were, were you going to finish another thought? Oh, yes, the insulin. I just wanted to explain where this whole low-carb kind of thing comes from and why moderation might not work for, let's say, sort of metabolic conditions. And when I'm saying metabolic conditions, you can call them chronic diseases of lifestyle, nutrition-related diseases. Mm -hmm. And I would lump them all together under metabolic syndrome, often obesity, but it does not necessarily go hand-in-hand with that, but it's one of them. Cardiovascular disease, diabetes, prediabetes, or insulin resistance. And then we could even potentially go into things like Alzheimer's or dementia, which is they're calling type 3 diabetes in the literature. If you go look on PubMed or Google Scholar, there's definitely a metabolic role there as well. And cancers, if you just look up Thomas Seafried's work, is exceptional. And the way they've managed to get cancer under control using, using metabolic therapies. Yeah, all sorts of really interesting stuff. 
anyway, I won't go into that, but basically there's a case for those to be metabolic diseases. So the role that insulin plays just from a basic kind of standpoint, if we're looking at body weight accumulation, and let's talk about kind of going towards prediabetes or metabolic syndrome. So let's stick to kind of the, that cluster. When you eat carbs like sweet potato, <laughs> it'll get broken down into glucose, which goes into the bloodstream. Now, already some of that, that carb is going to be, or glucose is going to be binding to receptors in your mouth and your tongue and then down your throat and then in your intestines in preparation, kind of telling your body that a carb load is coming or a sugar load is coming and your pancreas will produce insulin, start to produce insulin in response to that. Then when it actually gets broken down, digested and moves into the bloodstream, then your pancreas is going to produce more insulin. And the reason your pancreas does that is because insulin's job is to get that sugar, glucose, out of the bloodstream and into the cells where it can be used for energy or converted into the storage form of glucose called glycogen or be converted into, into fat if you really don't need it in either of those kind of for energy or for glycogen. So it's really important that insulin does that job because otherwise you'd be diabetic, which is, means your blood glucose would just go up and the high blood sugar would start to attack your blood vessels and your nerves and things like that. So your body knows it must kind of try and keep the blood sugar at one teaspoon at all times circulating in the bloodstream. So the insulin takes it out of the bloodstream to prevent it from going high and puts it into the cells. But insulin's job isn't just that. Insulin works at other organs as well. It works at the fat cells by acting kind of like, an, I, I see it as a warden of a prison when it comes to the fat cells. And the fat is kind of like, like the prison and the fact that's going into so the fat stores are the prison the insulin is the warden or the wardens of the prison and the the fat that's moving in and moving out of the inmates or the prisoners so when insulin is there when there are lots of wardens hanging around the entrance and the exit to the fat stores then they're going to be directing a lot of prisoners or fat into the prison but they are not going to be letting them prison break they're not going to be letting them come out because they're wardens of the prison and they're going to keep those exit doors tightly shut. Now, when they go a little AWOL and you have lower insulin levels because you're not eating as many carbs, so your pancreas doesn't have to produce as much insulin in response to a carbohydrate load from the diet, you have lower insulin levels, which means those wardens, there are less of them. What happens if there aren't enough wardens around a prison? Basically, the inmates can start breaking out. And also, there's less wardens to direct inmates into the prison. And so it's kind of like no, one, no one's going to want to go into prison if they don't have to, right? So if the warden isn't making them go in, they're not going in. And they'll be more likely to be available when you need energy to be burnt as energy. And so that's kind of how it works. So what you want to do is you want to get a, a client or a patient or a person or yourself who's overweight or struggling with insulin resistance or carbohydrate intolerance, if you want to call it that, or pre-diabetes, diabetes even, to get lower insulin levels so that that fat can be accessed so the inmates can break, can prison break and be used as energy when you are in a more fasted state. Because otherwise, if they're in lockdown in there, maybe you ate breakfast at eight o'clock and then two hours later, you know, you're going to be hungry again or definitely five hours later, but two hours later, you're going to be hungry again because you can't access your fat stores when your insulin levels are still high because those wardens are not letting the inmates out. And so that's really how it works. 
obviously when it comes to diabetes, there are more nuances and there's roles of glucagon and roles of insulin, I mean, roles of the liver producing glucose as well. But the primary glucose load is coming from the diet. And so in order to access the fat stores and not cause a distribution problem, as Gary Torbs calls it, we've got to get that insulin level low and let those inmates out to be used as energy by the cells when your body hasn't got freely available energy from the food you've just eaten. And that's how you burn fat. And then when you have a buildup of too much fat in the fat cells, which is caused by insulin, it also causes fat to start spilling over and start accumulating in places like the liver and the pancreas and even in the muscle cells. And when fats accumulate in the muscle cells, it's not from eating too much fat. It's from this kind of insulin resistance spillover effect from everything being stored in the fat cells. And there's other, there's other ways, but basically it's not from eating the fat. It's not from the fat that you eat, especially not saturated fat, that causes this buildup of fat in the cells. But the buildup of the fat in the cells causes your cells to become insulin resistant. So I'm talking about like your muscle cells, for example. And when that happens, Insulin is trying to tell the sugars to go into the cells, but the sugars aren't wanting to go into the cells anymore because it's actually a breakdown byproduct of that fat that's stored in the cells. Diacylglycerols and ceramides is what they're called, but they're kind of very toxic fat metabolites, intermediates. When there's too much fat accumulating in the cells, they actually interrupt the signaling, insulin signaling in the muscle cells, and it worsens the insulin resistance which means that your pancreas has to produce more insulin in order to try to get the sugar into the cells. But often in that context, the fat cells stay pretty insulin sensitive, which means that your sugar isn't getting into the muscle cells to be used, but it's still being converted into fat and getting into the fat cells to be stored because that stays pretty insulin sensitive. And to make matters worse, if you eat a lot of like omega-6 PUFAs, polyunsaturated fats, and seed oils and things like that, which you don't just have to add or fry in or cook in. That's in all your processed foods, like those crackers you mentioned, Doug. And those poofers make your fat cells more insulin sensitive. So that means that you're going to go be storing even more in response to insulin in your fat cells, but your muscle cells are going to be remaining insulin resistant. And so, sugar, so requiring more and more insulin. It's, it's, it's a it's a vicious cycle. It can sound quite complicated, but I hope I kind of made that a little bit understood. Crystal clear. <laughs> no, it is, it is a, as they say, a, a hot mess. What people don't understand is I heard Ben Bickman, I think it was him, another insulin kind of glucagon guru. I've been doing this for 22 years and I never heard anyone frame it this way until I think like nine months ago, I saw one of his videos. He said, where we've done people with type two diabetes, but that's everything leading up to that, including pre-diabetes or insulin resistance. We've done them a disservice by making this about blood sugar or a blood sugar issue when really they're drowning or swimming in insulin. These insulin levels are through the roof. The only hint I had at that which made me kind of scratch my head was years ago when I worked in a dialysis unit and one of the patients had diabetes and their blood sugar was getting worse and worse and worse. And so the doctor put them on insulin, right? And she kind of quietly said to me, it's, it's the cruelest joke that we do in medicine. We put them on insulin and then we tell them to lose weight and they can't lose weight, right? Because you have all this extra insulin being no. added to the milieu. <laughs> regulator that's insane <laughs> yeah and so we make it a blood sugar issue so people they may have you think in millimoles right yeah so so we you know somebody's blood sugar between meals is 10 and we give them extra insulin at their meal time and then it drops down to seven and they're happy because they've been told 
get your blood sugar low. And so they're happy. Why wouldn't they be happy? But where is that sugar going? And as you've pointed out, it's going in all the wrong places. And it's doing so in a less than desirable way just by putting in more insulin and shoving that stuff into where it doesn't belong. But just maybe in the last little few minutes here, I just you brought it up twice and I and I'm or three times and I'm I'm a believer in it because we're starting to understand that increasing long chain omega-6 fatty acids from grain and seed oils, as you say, vegetable oils is not benign. And my exposure to that as an intern was those fats, so corn, soy, whatever, sunflower, the mega-6s would lower LDL cholesterol, right? So in the liver, they interfere with the metabolism of those lipoproteins being made. And so that was the focus. It was like, let's just give them more of these oils because it lowers cholesterol and we assume LDL cholesterol. uh, And then we just assume that that would be good with no consideration to any potential unintended consequence. Exactly. We just were interested in getting that cholesterol down, right? Yeah. And so in a natural kind of ancestral diet, we ate far less of them. And then there's this idea that they're benign and we're eating, I don't know, I think the guidelines are saying up to 17 grams a day or 10% of your calories. Mm -hmm. The numbers are not important, but the idea is that eating a lot more than you would find in a natural diet is benign, but they really do mess up a lot of metabolic processes and have some dire consequences. Besides the fat cells, is there any that you want to touch on? Well, I just wanted to say that I think we must mention that whole cholesterol thing because, yes, those omega-6 polyunsaturated fats are going to lower your cholesterol. I mean, the Minnesota coronary experiment showed that when they put people on higher omega-6 and higher saturated fat, they found the saturated fat group had much higher cholesterol. The people on the omega-6s had lower cholesterol. But who were at higher risk of dying of heart disease and just dying in general? Who are the people, the people who are on the omega-6s? And the Sydney Diet Heart Study found exactly the same thing. And these are huge studies. They found, yes, it lowers cholesterol, but it doesn't reduce your risk of dying or getting a heart attack. So what's the point of lowering cholesterol? And those aren't the only studies that have found the same thing. I think it was the Women's Initiative, Health Initiative Study or the Nurses, I can't remember, one of those two found exactly the same thing. And all the studies on statins show the same thing. Statins, yes, they lower your cholesterol level, but they really don't significantly lower your risk of dying or of dying of heart disease, of something like a stroke or or a heart attack. So why lower your cholesterol if it's not going to help you? In fact, cholesterol, if you watch a bit of Dave Feltman, you would listen to a bit of his stuff or read a bit of his stuff, you would know that cholesterol has probably got got lots of functions or definitely has got lots of functions in the body and in the time of COVID-19, definitely you might want to note that higher cholesterol levels have got benefits, especially LDL cholesterol benefits for fighting infections. People who had higher cholesterol levels in a review study I read, who was it by? I will send it to you later. A brilliant review study from quite a while ago looked at immunity and cholesterol and showed that the people with higher cholesterol had less chance of getting respiratory diseases and less chance of being admitted to hospital as well. And then it talks about how the mechanisms, the physiology of how cholesterol is involved in the immune system and actually phagocytosing the pathogens and, yeah, and, and also activating certain immune components. And then obviously being converted into vitamin D. And we're seeing potentially places like the UK who are getting such terrible COVID outcomes, the population is largely vitamin D deficient. And we're finding the populations or higher vitamin D levels seem to 
be very strongly associated with higher vitamin D levels are strongly associated with far better outcomes when it comes to COVID-19. So, and vitamin D is made out of cholesterol. Sex hormones are made out of cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So you really don't want to just be lowering these things willy-nilly. We also know that statins can actually bring on side effects such as dementia. So if you read on the package insert, it says what to watch out out for for side effects of statins, not just angina, which is pain, heart pain or arrhythmias or things like that in the heart or muscle aches, but also, and the heart is a muscle, but also signs and symptoms of dementia, basically. And that's because the brain is made up of cholesterol. And if you're limiting cholesterol in the brain, that's also not good for you. So cholesterol is important in all of those ways. And, and it's being produced for a reason if it's high, generally, whether that's to fight infections or whether it's to promote optimal brain health or whatever it is. You don't want to reduce it, in my opinion, with things like statins, but obviously you want to speak to your doctor about that before you do anything to do with medication, always speak to your doctor. But also omega-6s, clearly lowering cholesterol isn't going to make you less, have you have less chance of dying. And then obviously omega-6s also get converted into pro-inflammatory eicosanoids, which are molecules in the body that promote inflammation. Obviously we don't want inflammation. Inflammation is the first step in all sorts of conditions, including heart disease. So you don't want inflammation. Omega-6s are really good at promoting that. They're really good at the level of the fat, making fat more insulin sensitive. So you're more going to, you're going to be in response to very high insulin levels, which a lot of people have. You're going to be storing more fat, as I said. But not only that, it also stops fat cells from dividing when they reach their capacity, which they should be doing. And it causes them to kind of just stay one big fat cell and grow and grow and grow until blood supply is cut off and they can't, it can't actually survive and it, it like it explodes basically. And that's been shown to have really, really bad, bad effects for disease, for metabolic diseases and, and for longevity and things like that. So there's that role that omega-6 plays. And then also the enzyme, I think it's called delta-6 desaturase, if I remember correctly, which is involved in converting the inactive forms of, of omega-6 into the active form of omega-6, so arachidonic acid into linoleic acid. And then it also is one little builder, one little workman that is involved in also converting the inactive form of omega-3 into the active form of omega-3 linolenic acid into EPA and DHA. So, sorry, I did the, the omega-6s the mm -hmm. wrong way around. But, yeah, so it's, it's involved in converting the inactive forms of both omega-6 and omega-3 into the active form. Now, if there is a huge amount of supply coming in on the omega-6 front, then all the builders are going to be building that house and not worrying about the tiny trickle of omega-3 that's coming in from maybe a couple of flax seeds you ate or maybe some walnuts. And so that's not going to be converting properly. And omega-3 is really essential for brain health, cardiovascular health, anti-inflammatory kind of actions. So it also basically takes the attention of the delta-6 desaturase away from where it could be beneficial, the omega-3 pathway, to the focusing on this deluge of building material that's coming in on the omega-6 side of the equation, thereby promoting inflammation, reducing the benefits from omega-3s, which is another reason why you want to get your omega-3 preformed from things like krill, fish oil, or algae, fish, ideally from whole foods, fish or algae if you have to take a supplement and you want to not take fish or krill. But you can also get enough omega-3, not just from seafoods, but actually from eating grass-finished or grass-raised animals like cows. <laughs> so if you're eating enough ruminants as well, 
there's kind of evidence that you can get sufficient omega-3s from that. And I've recently seen that. So omega-6s do a lot of bad stuff. You do need a little bit of them, but you really don't need a lot of them. And you're going to get enough of them from things like the meat you're eating and chicken, pork, definitely those are quite high in omega-6s. So you really don't need to be getting it from processed food, which is hugely giving you far, far, far too much. So I hope that, and, and those are the polyunsaturated fats that lower cholesterol as well, which isn't really good in my opinion. Yeah, it's just amazing the, when you think about the bulk of the evidence, and yet they're still being promoted, the margarines, the oils, products mm. made from them. It's Yeah, cookies, biscuits, crackers, mayonnaise, salad dressings, yeah. all that stuff that you don't even think you're having those things. You think, well, I don't cook with oil, those oils, so I use olive oil. It doesn't mean you're not getting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a bit of a, as I say, a, a shit show. Um, <laughs> so, so knowing all this, just to kind of wrap up. So the work that you do and the approach that you take and the work that you're doing that's been influenced by Noakes and others really does kind of address all these in one fell swoop, I guess. After those six years of the supplement industry and writing for the magazine, I did start seeing clients and I also started doing my master's degree, which I ended up doing in in low carbohydrate diets for type two diabetics. And after I finished that, I started working for the Noakes Foundation and another organization called the Nutrition Network. And both of those do amazing work. The Nutrition Network is really awesome about that, is that we train dietitians and we train doctors and we train nurses and we train health coaches on all the evidence and on the clinical application of that evidence. So people who do our courses will come out knowing how to treat their patients in an evidence-based manner using various carbohydrate restrictive strategies and whole food kind of strategies to treat various things, Alzheimer's, cancer, obviously the metabolic conditions, obesity. We've just launched our obesity module, which is a really nice comprehensive cover of how carbohydrate restricted diets can help in dealing with obesity and including things like fatty liver disease. Um, and we have some amazing speakers from Prof Noakes to Dr. Robert Sivers. Yeah, and that's just um, an obesity module. Then we've also actually, which I was involved in developing, is the dietitian's training. We have a, a, a training that is to train dietitians on treating their clients or their patients using carbohydrate-restricted diets. It has a kind of evidence section where you learn all about you know what what is the history what is the epidemiology what did what did the randomized control trials say what is the evidence for it and then there's a whole clinical practice section where you see how do i therapeutically treat let's say obesity and then you have an electron obesity and then a dietitian given lecture on you have an obese client here's how you actually do it here's how you do the meal plan with knowing how dietitians are trained. And there are various therapeutic things, obviously not just obesity, but diabetes, cardiovascular disease, so many. And we're still launching courses. So you can go, you know, the whole practitioner route where you follow our certification path, where you do three core modules that kind of set you up for, for how do you formulate a low-carb diet, you know, low-carb and clinical practice, the evidence, all of that kind of thing. And then you choose from electives. You can choose you know, to do a diabetes elective or to learn how to manage a diabetic patient or an obesity elective or a neurology elective or, yeah, there's just, it's, we give all that training that we, Doug, did not receive at university as we should have. 
And honestly, when I, when I saw the doctors being trained when I was at UCTE, they were given seven days of nutrition training in their entire degree. At least us nutritionists and dietitians were given, you know, four years of training in nutrition. But doctors really need this too. Dietitians need it because, yes, we were given four years of training, but a lot of it was based on, on the wrong stuff. So I think that what we are doing at Nutrition Network gets me so excited because it is filling a gap and it's training people like you and I on how to help our clients really and not just send them home to get fatter and sicker and not just to let them go down this chronic disease process with no hope because there is hope. We can reverse diabetes or at least put it into remission. People can lose weight. I have clients often losing 30 kilos or more with ease, without hunger, because insulin isn't making them hungry because it's not, you know, it's not at those high levels. I've had clients who I've helped with cancer patients or Alzheimer's patients, and you can really make such a big difference in people's lives knowing basically what, what is best evidence, what is evidence-based practice that we were not taught on rather than the archaic, politicized evidence that we were taught often. Find Nutrition Network at nutrition-network.org, and that's the website. You can get all the information or anything you want there if you're interested in, in our trainings. You know, and it's hugely important because as the saying goes, the cat's out of the bag because like I said, 20 years ago, people were talking about the zone diet, like a fad diet, which was what, mm. 40% carb. I was even like shocked when people talking about like, no, you're going to die. And so there's no ignoring like the floodgates are open, the evidence is there. And mm. so dietitians need to be on board, at least to understand it and learn it if they want to apply it because clients are going to go away and try and do it on their own. It's not going to be dangerous, I don't think, but at the very least, they'll get discouraged and they won't get the support they need. So something structured like this is I, I think, um, amazing. Um, I think that clients, like I've had clients who say they've done low carb before and they've gone off and done it on their own and they've been still eating very high carb things and just not knowing it and saying, well, it just didn't work for me. Or they don't know that after seven days of doing it properly, within the seven days, they might be you know, not getting enough salt. And so they throw it away because they experience the carb flu, which is totally you know, rectifiable. So mm -hmm. I think that, yes, it might not be dangerous, but it certainly does have negative effects if people go onto it wrongly or don't know how to sort out things that are very preventable, like carb flu, because they could have solved a huge metabolic disease and now they are kind of like, no, this isn't going to work for me. And then there are contraindications. So people with very rare metabolic genetic alterations, like in their fat metabolism genes okay. and things, those people can't go on a high-carb diet or someone with, with a condition called porphyria, for example, it is contraindicated. But those are very, very, very rare diseases in people who can't go like ketogenic by ketogenic, very low-carb diet. So most people can benefit from it. And honestly, if you look at the most recent stats from the NHS in the US, showed that 88% of people were metabolically unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Only 12% of people had no metabolic like, problem. Mm -hmm. And that tells you that 88% of people kind of do with the kind of diet that we are suggesting. 88% of the population, the majority of the population should actually be eating a whole real food diet, lower in carbohydrates and higher in real fats. 
Yeah, and it's because they haven't hit that magic arbitrary cutoff of 6.1 millimoles to be defined as pre-diabetic. And so, yeah, courses like this, I'm just looking at it on the computer here. It looks amazing because now's the time for dietitians to be bringing patients into the fold, if you will, with the best available tools and training. So that's exactly what this will do. So that's probably about all the time we have for today. I think we could probably talk for another four or five hours. I think you're just oh, getting yeah, warmed up. Yeah, we I think can you're even just... talk about our clients and how this has actually worked for them, that it's not just theoretical, it's not just evidence, it actually works. I mean, I am sure your clients... You've seen amazing things. Yeah, and, and with myself. And, and that's kind of, you know, people can't ignore it anymore. They go in and they say, what are you doing? You're like, everything's improved. Well, I've stopped doing all the standard care and I'm doing whatever I'm doing, like lower carb. Anyway, they're, they're making changes. And then so the doctor mm. will say, well, just keep doing what you're doing. So, yeah, so I think we'll wrap up. There's so much more to talk about. Maybe we'll talk again in the future sometime um, when you're not busy sa- too busy saving the world. Um, but I, <laughs> I know people are going to love this because there is so much confusion out there. You've really kind of summarized a lot of the confusion, whether you're intending to or not. The recording is going to be really, really rich in content that people keep rewinding and listening. And then the course. I mean, what can I say? The course looks ideal. And I would just encourage people to go to that site again. And I just wanted to thank you for your time and fighting the good fight and being on the leading edge. Yeah, it's been such a privilege and an honor to be here on your podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of your wonderful listeners as well. And it was so nice to get to chat to you. And yes, I could chat to you forever. (laughs) So, um, So I know we have to call it a day. And thank you for having me and for this very interesting conversation. Thanks again. Hit subscribe and get ready to expand your nutritional world, your perspective, and gain confidence in a way that you didn't know you could. And be sure to check out my website, dougcookrd.com.